It's great to be with you all again this morning. Um, enjoyed coming here about six, seven weeks ago, so I'm glad to be back uh, in the midst of the summer. Um, if you have your Bibles, or you can look on the, the screen behind me, we'll be looking at Genesis 4. So, uh, so I'm going backwards, because last time I came, I talked about Genesis 11 and 12, but we're going to go back and talk about Genesis 4. Um, so and if you're wondering, I'm going through Genesis this fall uh, at Rhodes, so... I appreciate um, y'all getting to hear some of these messages first um, before my students. So it's, it's been exciting to get to, to, to talk, go through these passages of Scripture with you. Um, so let me read uh, Genesis 4, starting in verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought, brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahushal, and Mahushal fathered Methushel, sorry, I don't always pronounce these great, and Methushel fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Adah, and the name of the other Zillah. Adah bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jabal. He was the father of all those who played the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Namah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for um, this passage. I thank you for your gospel. And I pray that, that a story that maybe many of us know through Sunday school, through just kind of mythology, through through just kind of growing up 
um, in the Western in a Western nation, Lord. We heard about Cain and Abel, and I pray that that you would truly help us to understand what this passage means and to encourage us uh, this morning. I pray this in your name. Amen. So, so this morning, uh, in just for the first question, I always ask, and I always wondered when I heard this story. Um, you know, not just kind of played out for me in Sunday school, but when I actually read this story for the first time, this question kept returning to me again and again and again, which is, why Abel and not Cain? Why Abel and not Cain? You know, what is going on here? What's going on here? Well, we see that, that both sons, both Cain and Abel, bring worthy sacrifices. You know, one from the field, and one from a garden. Both appear to be hard workers. You know, outwardly, they appear the same. However, God only accepts Abel's sacrifice. And we see that it is, you know, so what we have, we're left with, it is the heart of Abel and Cain that separate them. You see, Abel is obviously bringing a sacrifice in response to what God has done. Verse 4 gives us some clue because Abel brings the firstborn. You can wait to see, you know, how you did and then tithe to God, or you can bring immediately. And it was like Abel was so excited to bring an offering. He bought he brought the first the firstborn. We also get help here from other passages in scripture. We look at Psalm 51, 15 through 17, and Hebrews 11 through 4, 11, 4. Psalm 51 says this, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will, do not, will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Then, of course, Hebrews 11, 4 says this, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, Abel still speaks. So what, it, what these passages are helping us understand with Genesis 4 is that Abel's sacrifice is with a contrite heart. It's with faith. He's responding to God's love for him. It's coming from the heart. And so what is faith? You know, it's one of those things that maybe if you've kind of grown up in Christian circles, it's one of those things when you ask what is faith, you know, it kind of maybe takes you a second. You've kind of already always known it, but it might be hard to kind of think through. You know, because sometimes we think of faith as just sort of belief in God. But obviously Cain believed in God. Cain was having dialogue with God. But Abel actually had faith. He rested in what God had done. And in God's promises for him and his family. Faith is resting in God's love for us. Cain's offering, of course, was not done out of response to God's love. You know, some would maybe say he's just going through the motions. But he's not just going through the motions. Because actually Cain is really frustrated that his offering is rejected. If he's just going through the motions, why would he be upset? Rather, what we see is... Cain, through his offering, was trying to earn God's favor. He was trying to merit God's approval. He was trying to earn God's love. Basically, uh, unlike Abel's offering that came from a contrite heart, Cain's offering was, in a sense, bribery. That, and this is why Cain's sacrifice was rejected. And, of course, this made Cain very, very angry. 
You know, he, Cain, was the firstborn. You know, his mother had been blessed at his birth. He works the ground like his parents. You know, he probably worked harder the way he thought. He probably worked way harder than Abel did in his mind. You see, we don't worship God and go to church so that God will like us or reward us or give us what we want. You know, this is some sort of kind of divine bribery. And and it's similar to the original audience here who would have just been coming out of Egypt. It's similar to pagan sacrificing. It's similar to the way the Egyptians would have worshipped their gods. No, for For a Jewish person and for a Christian, we worship God as a response to his love and his grace for us. You know, often when I talk to college students, you know, and I ask them about, you know, their belief in God and how they view God, what they often describe, they might not use these words, but they often describe a God who is sort of like Santa Claus, this sort of, you know, omnipotent Santa Claus in outer space somewhere who punishes and rewards people depending on how they live. You know, sort of a a karma God, in a sense. And again, the original audience here would have experienced Egyptian worship that was very similar to that, where you brought things to the gods, you brought offerings to the gods in hopes that they would reward you, in hopes that they would answer and hear your prayers. Abel is actually just coming and offering God, giving an offering to God as a response. Abel is saying, thank you, God, for showing favor to me, a sinner. Because you have loved me and loved my parents, despite our sin, and you have given me everything I need, I will freely offer this sacrifice in worship as a response to your love. Cain expected to merit God's favor through his offering. He was saying, look how good I am. Look how hard I work. Look at all that I have accomplished and look what I am giving up for you. Now reward me. Now love me in response. Cain is sort of a legalistic way of looking at God. Abel is a gracious way of looking at God. Cain is about rules. Abel is about relationship. Cain is sort of like nice church-going people. Abel is, have mercy on me, a sinner. Cain is living by works, and Abel is living by faith. And so what happens when you see God, like many of my students, when you see God the way Cain sees him? Well, you get really mad and angry at God when things do not go according to your plan. And I remember, I, you know, uh, I remember in high school, I would always think this way, that when it became time uh, for basketball tryouts, and when it came time for the homecoming dance, and I was going to ask that girl I had a crush on uh, to go out with me, the, those weeks leading up to that, I was reading my Bible every day. I was being super nice to my parents and my sister. I was doing all these right things. I was praying and I was doing all these things, not because I thought, you know, those are like good things to do and I should be a good person. No, I was doing all of that because I felt like if I was a good Christian, if I was doing all the right stuff, then God would reward me. God would let me make the basketball team. 
God would have that girl say yes when I asked her out on a date. And that is the way I, uh, I thought about, uh, you know, what my relationship God, how it worked. And I think for many of us, we still think that way each and every day. We think in a way that, that we live good so that God will give us good things. And when we mess up, when we sin, God is going to punish us. God is going to throw the lightning bolts of life our way. And this, in a sense, if you believe this, this is why if you read this passage, it should make you mad. In some ways, probably for some of you, as we are reading it, you kind of, in the back of your mind, were getting a little frustrated and being like, why, why, why did God reject Cain and accept Abel? And why won't this passage make it really clear, you know, well, Abel was a really good person and Cain was a really bad person. And, and so obvious, it, it's obvious why, you know, God accepted one and rejected the other. But, but that's why it should make you mad, because God desires for you to be happy. God desires for you to love others as you work and rest. But God doesn't care how successful you are. You know, your grades, your resume, your house, your car, your bank account doesn't make God love you any more or any less than he does right now. In fact, your holiness, how good you are morally, has no effect on how much God loves you. Because if you are in Christ, God cannot love you any more or any less than he does right now. You cannot earn or work for God's approval or love. You can't do anything today or tomorrow or next year to make God love you more than he does right now. I tell my road students all the time, whether you make an A or a C or an F, whether the last month was a success or a failure at work or at home, does not change how God feels about you. You know, do you know this? And, and what it leaves is there are two ways to approach God. If you are a Christian, there are two ways. You can respond to what he has done for you and promised for you with gratitude. Or you can keep trying to earn his approval that you already have. Or keep trying to justify yourself when you've already been justified. One approach brings joy and freedom when we're responding to God's goodness. When, he ex- when we accept that God cherishes and delights in us. And then we actually just get to show up on a Sunday morning and worship Him gladly. Respond to that love in worship. We might actually just pray to him, not because of something we want, but we can pray to him as someone we know loves us, as someone we know wants the best for us, who knows more what we need and what will make us happy than we ourselves know. So, of course, we're going to go pray to him. And, of course, we're motivated in life by his perfect, unconditional love for us to go out and live for his kingdom. To love our neighbor as ourselves. Because we know it's the best for us. And it's the best for this world. And it's what God wants. And we respond to who God is. And live live out that way. Or. We can do what many religious people do. Especially here in the south. We can always be performing. We can always be trying to earn approval. From those around us and from God. I think often Christians 
are actually practicing sort of an ancient Egyptian and Canaanite paganism more than they're practicing Christianity. Eugene Peterson kind of says it this way. He says, we've all met a certain type of spiritual person. She's a wonderful person. She loves the Lord. She prays and reads the Bible all the time. But all she thinks about is herself. She's not necessarily a selfish person, but she's always at the center of everything she's doing. How can I witness better? How can I do this better? How can I take care of this person's problems better? It's me, me, me disguised in a way that's difficult to see because her spiritual talk disarms us. It talks about how quickly we can take this Christian gospel that's about grace and make it into works and make it a legalistic religion rather than a religion that's based on God's grace and love for us. And of course, if we live this way and when we get in this sort of pattern, it leads us to anger like it leads Cain to anger. When bad things happen, it's either because you are not good enough or because God is unfair. This thought leads to discouragement. It leads to depression. The exact state of Cain here when it talks about his face being fallen. Because that's the only way. If you think of God this way, as, then, then it means either that you weren't good enough for God, and so he's not giving you what you want, and you're going to have to be even better, or God's unfair. You've been doing good, and yet God still hasn't rewarded you. It is, it's a way of leading to misery. If you practice that kind of Christianity, you will feel depressed. Your face will be fallen. And of course, some of you might say, well, what has God done for me? Why should I respond to him with worship? And so I want to finish this passage up by looking at the difference between God and between sin or evil and the difference here and why we should worship this great God, why we should bring a sacrifice and offering like Abel to him in response. Look at verses six through seven. We see that Cain is angry and depressed, and God comes to ask him why. And I always, I always really want to point out uh, to my college students this, because I think you know, they read a lot of Old Testament passages and their religion classes and things, and, and, and there's this kind of feeling like old, you know, God is sort of this kind of punishing, you know, angry type of God. And yet when you read Genesis 1 through 4, what you have is everything about what God is doing is wonderful and amazing. And humans are messing it up, and yet God isn't uh, punishing them. God's coming to them. God's pursuing them. He's desiring to get at their hearts. You know, God is coming and asking questions of them, like kind of a good counselor would, trying to get at them. God pursues Adam and Eve even after the fall. God pursues Cain even after he he murdered his brother Abel. In fact, God pursued Cain before he did. God was always pursuing Cain here in this passage. You know, God, of course, isn't asking questions to Cain to gain knowledge or to know what is in his heart. God is asking Cain questions to try to bring awareness and truth to him. You know, this is no sort of distant space Santa Claus God judging from afar. This is a God coming down and having a relationship with people. 
And so we see here already that God is full of love and mercy. He desires for Cain to understand why his sacrifice was different than Abel's. He desires for Cain to let go of his anger and his legalism and embrace the gospel. Because, of course, he knows a legalistic view of God will bring sin. He's gently warning Cain before he does something horrible, which, of course, he does. And so later, when Cain actually does murder his brother, God again does not dismiss Cain, but engages him. God shows he is just. He's saying, your brother's blood speaks to me crying for justice. When we hurt others, when we sin against others, it hurts God. This is, again, no distant tyrant. God wants not to just confront Cain, but to get Cain to understand his sin and repent. When God punishes Cain, Cain has sort of the audacity to complain about the punishment being unfair. And of course, a fair punishment, you know, especially in that culture, the eye for an eye punishment would have been Cain's death. Yet God gives a punishment that might allow Cain to repent. Because Cain can no longer farm his work that, of course, he's used to justify himself and prove himself, he now has to rely on other people for food. God wants to bring him into community. God wants to rehabilitate him. God wants to humble him. He wants Cain to understand his need of people and of God. Further, God graciously puts a protection on Cain when he worries about his life. You know, so Cain, you're going to have to rely on people. Well, God, Cain, well, God, people are going to kill me. And God's like, no, I'm going to make it so that nobody can harm you. So you can have complete confidence that you will not have any violence against you. I'm going to remove all barriers for you to go and be in community with people. But that's not good enough for Cain. You know, the petulant Cain here looks absurd. He just murdered his brother. And he's still complaining to God. He's still mad at God that God didn't approve of his sacrifice. And I always think about this because I always think that because I'm somebody who is, likes to complain. I don't know about you all. I like to complain. Um, I like to grumble. And I'm one of those people that Thanksgiving is always very, you know, convicting for me. Because in Thanksgiving, usually, um, whether I'm with my in-laws or with my family, you know, there's this sense of, you know, well, let's go around and talk about what we're thankful for. And I always realize how hard that is for me. Like, it does not come quick. And I remember uh, early on in our marriage, my wife started to make a rule when I would talk about ministry or I talk about churches or I talk about anything like, John, you have to give me three positives before you give me one negative. Cause I just would always be about the negatives because I, I struggle so much with gratitude. Instead of gratitude, you know, often I've come upset and concerned with what I have, you know, what that's showing is that I'm angry ultimately at God. I'm angry that God put me in a world like this, that angry that God did these things for me, and I struggle with gratitude. You know, how heartbreaking it is to read a verse 16 of Cain going away from the presence of the Lord. You know, why? Why would he go away from the presence of a God 
who even after doing something as horrible as murdering his brother would still come and pursue him, would still come and come after his heart, would give him a blessing and say, no harm is ever going to come to you from other people, even though you just murdered somebody. And yet Cain wants to leave that gracious and loving presence. And I ask you why, as I ask myself as I was looking at this passage, why do we resist grace so much? Why are we always trying to get away from such a loving God? Why, when we mess up in sin, do we want to hide from God instead of running to Him and His grace and His love for us? And we see, again, that Cain's sin has no power over God's gracious promises. That, that no matter that he left his presence, God's promises stay true. Cain is not harmed by another human. He, he lives to an old age. We also see that man is still created in God's image. It's one of the reasons why I read all of chapter 4, so that we could see that, that despite the sin despite the evil, that you see Cain's ascendants doing all these wonderful, amazing things because they're creating God's image in music and science and technology. And then, of course, the passage ends with Seth being born as part of the promised offspring that would eventually lead to Jesus. Because part of the drama of Genesis 4 is in Genesis 3, again, the fall happens and God does not wait even one chapter to say, I'm going to come and make all this good. I'm going to restore the world. I know, Adam and Eve, you have sinned and brought evil into this world, but I am not going to let that continue. I'm already instigating a plan of a descendant who's going to come and restore all things. And you see, in their, as soon as Cain and Abel are born, you see both Satan and his temptations and you see sin coming and trying to thwart that plan of descendants with Cain killing Abel. And yet we see by the end of the passage that God's promises will remain. That Genesis 3.15 will come true as Seth would go on, you know, whose major descendant would be Jesus. So we see that God's grace overcomes all human sin. The author of Hebrews in 1224 talks about Jesus' blood as speaking a better word than Abel's. You see, Abel's blood demanded justice, but Christ's blood allows mercy. Jesus' blood satisfies Abel's cry for justice, but it also brings us grace. It brings us mercy. And this is who God is. This is his story of redeeming his people whom he loves. You and me. Jesus becomes a sacrifice for us. We see this from the very beginning of the Bible to the very end. That God graciously pursues and loves his people. Why do we not want to respond to a God like that? By worshiping him. And to close, let's just contrast that God with sin, with evil, with the way it looks like Cain chose. 
Because in 4.7, God says, sin is like a predator crouching at your door, desiring to consume you. And I always, you know, uh, whenever I think about this crouching at my door, I always think of a story. So when I grew up, uh, one of my best friends in middle school and high school, Chris, his little brother, for whatever reason, thought, I'm not trying to give out any ideas here, so sorry parents, but his little brother loved to just hide in closets, to hide around corners and jump out at you and scare you. And I always think about that because I would always be like slightly terrified when I go to spend the night at his house or to go hang out with him. Because, I mean, his little brother would like sit in a closet for an hour and a half or two hours just so that when you opened it, he could jump out and scare you. And it, and it, and it just like always terrified me, his little brother. It was, was always scaring me all the time. And I always think about that because I think about that sort of the way sin is. That it waits, it waits, it crouches, ready to come out. It's very patient. It's very patient. It crouches at your door, ready um, to come at you when you least expect it. When you're, when, you know, it's time. That sin, you know, of course, doesn't just scare you, it consumes you. And while God loves us and wants the best for us, sin tries to dominate us. You see, God is warning Cain that the sin of anger and envy of his brother, if left to fester and not repented of and not dealt with, will eventually come to rule over him. And this unfortunately comes true in the murder of his brother. We also see that sin is deceiving. It's deceiving. You know, we're always rationalizing and justifying our sin, just like Cain was always sort of rationalizing and justifying his sin to God. We say things like, we're not judgmental or self-righteous. You know, we just have standards and we're really moral. You know, we're not unforgiving and unmerciful to people. We just have high standards. We don't hate people. We just avoid certain people. Because they're annoying or immature or awkward or not as moral as we are. We're not greedy. We're just accustomed to a certain lifestyle. I know this is wrong, but you know what? I'm not hurting anyone but myself. I know God says this is wrong, but God says he wants me to be happy and this is going to make me happy. You know, we only talk about people behind their back and gossip about them because we're concerned for them. This is just who I am. Everybody needs to deal with it. They did it first. This is one of my favorite and my children's favorite. They did it first. When we're actually confronted with something, we'll say, well, you do the same thing. You're a hypocrite. Because for us, two wrongs mean we don't have to deal with what we've actually been accused from. And this is like our entire social public discourse right now, which is you're wrong about something. Well, you're wrong about something. And that's like what we do. It's also most of our marriages and most of our friendships. And these things are all me. These are all the ways that I justify my sin. 
You know, I'm a hypocrite. I am sinful. And yet, the gospel says that I'm loved anyway. And that God is changing me. And that the blood of Jesus is actually changing me and transforming me each and every day. So sin is deceiving, but sin also gives false promises. Sin told Adam and Eve that they would be happy if they disobeyed God. Told them that they would be like God. And yet they already were because they were created in His image. Sin has Cain thinking that God was unfair. And it consumes him to the point of murdering his brother. Sin convinced Cain that killing Abel was the only way for him to be happy. How crazy is that? The fruit of sin is misery, unhappiness, and death. Cain murdering Abel only brings him misery. Further now, he fears being murdered by others. Because when we hurt others, we fear being hurt. It's this vicious cycle that sin brings into our lives. That's why the more we lie or gossip, the more insecure and paranoid we are about how other people view us. The more greedy we are, the less we actually enjoy the wealth and gifts that God have given us. The more we have to win and accomplish in life, the more others need to lose and fail. You know, sin destroys community. Sin is a community killer. Even just hurting yourself hurts others because it brings up shame and walls in your relationships. It's a lie that we can, that what we do can only hurt ourselves. It always hurts other people because we're relational beings. Here, Cain's descendants build literal walls to hide from men. And you see a horrible picture of the fruit of sin in in Lamech. In contrast to Adam and Eve's wonderful marriage and Adam's song about her in Genesis 2, Lamech sings a song about himself and how great he is to his two wives. He turns Cain's mark of grace into a mark of vengeance. And sort of this code he lives by uh, of avenging 77 anything done to him. And so what we see here is how sin breathes kind of alienation and misery. So I ask you, you know, who is your master? Is it God or is it sin? What story do you believe in? The story of redemption of a loving God who loves a messy people? Or do you believe the false stories of sin? Because we see Cain believed his performance is what mattered to God. That's how he could earn God's approval. While Abel responded to God's love for him with worship. You know, and so I ask you this morning and today to examine your hearts. How do you approach worshiping God? The other day, um, the other day in one of my uh, community groups, small groups, the question was asked, what false stories, what false gospels do you believe? Many answers are given, you know, because again, this world has many false stories. You know, one of the things I said was, I am how other people see me. And of course, sin jumps all over that story. But God tells me over and over again in scriptures that I don't have to be cool or successful or smart to be loved by him and to enter his presence. Another person said, I'm going to mess it all up. I'm going to be a big failure. 
But God says, I don't demand perfection. Look at what performing brings Cain. Look at how God treats Cain's failure. The Bible is a book of people failing over and over and over again. And God loving them and forgiving them and restoring them over and over and over again. Another said, sometimes I think God just tolerates me. But God doesn't just tolerate you. God loves you. God knows your sin better than you do. There's sins you don't even know are aware of that God's aware of. And yet he says, I love you. I love you. I cherish you. You are my treasure and I will do wonderful and great things for you and through you. And I, and I'm going to be with you for eternity. You see, false stories only bring despair. Well, the gospel brings joy. So I ask, what are your false stories? My grades or my success or my looks define my worth and whether I'll be eternally happy. You know, my stuff and the amount that I've collected defines me. Maybe it's starving or hurting or or numbing myself in all sorts of ways. It helps me feel like I'm in control. But it actually shows that you desperately need to rest in a God who is in control and wants the best for you. Maybe it's just I am unlovable. When again, Jesus loves you more than you could ever understand. In Christ, you're beautiful. You have no shame. You have no guilt. He forgives you. I mean, that's one of the things about the prophets. Like Jonah, they were annoyed. Like they were annoyed because of how gracious and wonderful and loving God was. And so they were like annoyed because they knew if if they told their enemies about God, that God would love them and forgive them. And they didn't want that because they understood just how powerful the gospel of grace is and how loving and gracious God is. Maybe some of y'all think I will be lonely my whole life. But here again, God has given you his church. God has given you Christian fellowship. God has come into you in the Holy Spirit and dwells with you always. Some of my students who've come from really hard backgrounds talk about life. They sometimes just feel like life is only suffering and pain. But it's not. And while some of you and some of your church members are going through tons of stuff right now, God is with you. And this church is here for you. And you worship a God who suffered so that when he returns, all suffering will end. So please say, begin to think and reflect about the false stories you believe that make us forget the beauty and wonder of the gospel and who God is. And reflect on how much better the gospel story is than all these other false stories and how wonderful God is. And how even if he knows that we live by all these false stories, he loves us anyway. And he keeps pursuing us. And he keeps reminding us of the real story which is the gospel. That he's going to take away all the misery and unhappiness that sin has bred in our lives and in our loved ones' lives. And he's going to replace it with joy. And we're going to live with him forever.
And that's the true story. Let's pray. Hey, Father, I thank You for Your love. I thank You um, for a story like Cain and Abel that holds so many great truths in it, Lord. I, I pray that for everyone here this morning that they would hear just how wonderful the gospel story is and that for all of us in our hearts that we would see the beauty in the gospel and how it is more beautiful and more wonderful than any other false story that we can come and live by. I pray that you'll help us with that this morning. I pray this in your name. Amen. Please stand.